The title of this sermon is Saul's Conspiracy Theory. Uh, A conspiracy is a secret plan by a group to do something that's either illegal or harmful. But a conspiracy theory is a wrong-headed, overwhelming, exaggerated fear of conspiracies. Conspiracy theories are built around a paranoid fear that there is some group out there somewhere that has some inside information, some essential information that they're withholding from you. These theories range from things that are relatively silly, like the fact that it seems like the NFL refs are blowing calls at the end of games so that the Green Bay Packers will win whenever they're on primetime. It's just a theory. Or maybe things like the fact that the earth is actually flat and not round. That's a thing. Or maybe it actually gets more serious. Like, uh, these conspiracy theories can be very dark. Like the belief that the Jews were to blame for the economic crisis of the early 19th century in Germany. In World War II, Hitler was consumed with fears of a Jewish conspiracy against him. Joseph Stalin in Russia was consumed with a conspiracy theory about this secret society of a British and American coalition that was going to come and take them over. And those conspiracy theories, those paranoid fears that were not based in reality at all, turned unimaginably violent. And that same phenomenon that is present there, it was present in our sermon text this morning. Saul is presented as a madman who accuses everyone around him of spinning the truth. There's this web of intrigue surrounding him. He trusts no one. And what we'll see this morning is that his misguided dread of others is actually rooted in the fact that he doesn't rightly fear God. A right fear of God, a healthy, loving fear of God is this, a a loving desire to please God more than anyone else. That should lead to a right love, a healthy love of others. So here's what we need to know this morning. Godly leadership must begin with the fear of God. If not, we will fear other people and we'll try to please them rather than trying to please God. And this applies to all of us in some way or another. If you think, I'm not a leader, I can tune out. You have influence over people in your lives. This matters for all of us this morning. We need to fear God and seek righteousness and justice so that we can be a blessing to those people that we find in our lives. We have to learn to fear the Lord more than we fear others. Because if we don't, we may end up abusing or hurting others or even ourselves. The big idea this morning is this. If you don't fear God, you'll be frightened by others. If you don't fear God, you'll be frightened by others. There is, maybe put it this way, if you don't have a healthy fear of God, you'll have an unhealthy fear of people. This, I believe, is the big idea of the text, but before we get into it, let's let's pray and ask for God's help. Uh, Father, as we turn to your word this morning, we are mindful of the fact that you are our holy Lord. There is none like you, and you've revealed yourself to us, and your word describes ourselves more than we could ever understand ourselves. These characteristics that we find in all of the characters here in this narrative, they still exist today. This event which happened so long ago is still remarkably relevant for us this morning. Father, we all need a Savior. We all need a good, 
leader. We all need Jesus. And so we pray this morning that you would help us to see our need of him and help us to rejoice in the fact, to find comfort in the fact that we do have him as our leader. We'll pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we set out this fall to look together as a church at the life of David. This particular chapter, as you just heard it read, doesn't have a whole lot of David in it. This particular chapter really is more about Saul. But by looking at Saul, we actually are able to understand David better. See, the author of Samuel, 1st and 2nd Samuel, is trying to help us understand who David is by contrasting him with Saul. We can understand David better by seeing the way that he acts and the way he thinks and the way that he responds to certain things compared to the way that Saul does. These two men are being compared to one another because they really they, they represent two different ways to embody having power or leadership. Saul is the king that Israel wanted, but he's not the king that they needed. They wanted a king like the other nations, so God provided for them a king like the other nations. He was more handsome than anyone else. He was very tall. He was straight out of central casting. Like if you're going to make a movie about a guy who becomes a king, this is the man you would pick. And his reign starts out well. It seems like he's sincere in his initial reign. He wants to be a good king. He has some military victories early on. But as his time as king unfolds, it becomes more and more clear that he does not fear God. And that's sort of the one non-negotiable aspect that must be present in a king of Israel. He must fear God. When God brought his people up out of Egypt and he brought them into their own land, he gave them his law. He wanted them to know how to act as his people. Moses receives that law, he shares it with the people, and just before Israel entered into that promised land, Moses lays it out for him again, says, listen, this is the full law, just to make sure that this is fresh in your minds before you go into this land to which God is giving you. He said this, listen, if you guys ask for a king, I'll give you a king, but here's the thing, he must fear the Lord. All of God's people were to fear him, but it was super important for the Israelite king to fear God. Listen to Deuteronomy 17, 18 to 20, it says this, This is part of that requirement that God gave for his kings before Israel entered the land. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he, this is the king, shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord, his God, by keeping all of the words of this law and these statutes, and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brother's that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So this is to be the heart of God's king. He needs to write his own copy of God's law and then have it checked for mistakes by the priests who would know it well, just make sure he didn't write anything down wrong. And then he was supposed to read in it every day. He was supposed to be intimately familiar with the law of God. And so he wanted to know what God intended for his people. The king is supposed to administer righteousness. He's supposed to administer justice in his reign, within his kingdom. And he's supposed to bring about a blessing for those people that are under his authority. So when it's clear that Saul is going to be king, 
Samuel reminds the people, Israel, one more time, just so we're clear, in 1 Samuel 12, verses 14 to 15, he says this. This is Samuel to the people and to, to Saul. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both of you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against his commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you, you and your king. Well, Saul starts out well, as I mentioned. He defeats the enemies of God's people that are surrounding Israel. But then something happens. The Lord tells Saul, through Samuel, to wipe out the Amalekites. Uh, The Amalekites were historically an enemy of God's people. And nothing was to remain of them. Nothing was to be spared. They were a wicked and evil people that opposed Israel when they were coming up out of Egypt. They were constantly, persistently causing trouble for Israel. So Saul goes, he defeats the Amalekites, but he doesn't do what God asked him to do. He kept the king alive. He wasn't supposed to keep anybody alive. He keeps the king alive, and then he brings back their best cattle, and he brings back their best sheep for himself. So the next day they get back, Samuel wakes up, he goes to talk to Saul, he's like, hey Saul, did you do what God asked? And it's like, yes, yeah, Saul, good man, I got it. We, we went and defeated him, and I did exactly what God asked me to do. And Samuel says, well, then can you explain that bleeding of sheep that I hear in the background? Or the lowing of oxen? Do you care to explain that? Samuel says, well, it seems like you didn't actually do what God asked you to do. Saul makes excuses, but eventually Saul says, you know what, you're right. I didn't do what God asked because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. So you can see here already God not in central, uh, at the heart of Saul's decision making. He's fearing people. He's not fearing God. And so Samuel tells Saul, listen, God's going to remove your kingdom from you. You don't fear him. You You fear these people that you're supposed to be leading in fearing the Lord along with you. Samuel turns and he walks away and he says, you're going to lose the kingdom. Saul grabs onto his cloak and tears it. Samuel looks down and says, God is going to tear the kingdom away from you. This, of course, is when we see David actually enter into the scene. David is a king after God's own heart. He's supposed to be clearly contrasted with this reign of Saul. Saul starts out loving David when he first meets him. Right? David comes and he plays music for him. It's all good. But it becomes clear that David is going to become the king. And so Saul starts to turn on him. He tries to trip him up. He tries to kill him constantly. This is what we've been hearing in this sermon series so far. And every time he keeps coming after David, it always turns back on him. He tries to trip him up and kill him constantly. But it always ends up turning back on Saul. So you can imagine the resentfulness of Saul. You can imagine the way that his Hatred towards David is rising up and swelling in his heart against David. He sees that David is a threat to his kingdom, and every time he tries to put an end to him, he ends up hurting himself and losing his grip on his own kingdom. This frustration builds. This hatred of David swells. And all the while, Saul is suffering from an oppression from a harmful spirit sent to him by the Lord as a judgment 
So you need to really sort of visualize what's happening here to Saul. He starts out pretty good, and then he tragically turns bad. In my mind, I sort of see it like Gollum in Lord of the Rings. Smeagol turning into Gollum slowly. He begins like an ordinary hobbit, uh, but then when he finds that infamous ring and he sort of tastes the power that comes with that ring, he starts to go crazy. Tell me you guys have seen Lord of the Rings. All right. That seems like some people. Uh, Gollum gets this powerful ring that has control over like all the kingdoms. And so whenever somebody gets that ring, they, they get a taste of that power and it's captivating to them. And they end up being beholden to this ring. And that happens to this hobbit named Smeagol and he turns into an evil dude. He ends up abusing others. He turns crazy. His body breaks down. He lives in seclusion. He lives away from everyone else. He becomes paranoid. Uh, he's always thinking that someone's going to come and try to take that ring away from him. Those tricksy hobbitses. That, that's sort of what I imagine when I picture Saul. That downward spiral. And his downward spiral hits a tragic low in our chapter this morning, chapter 22. Last week we heard about how David went to the priest's in Nob, and he got some supplies as he's running for his life from King Saul. The priest Ahimelech gives him the holy bread. He gives him the sword of Goliath for protection. But remember that David told Ahimelech, that priest, that he was on a secret mission from the king. So Ahimelech didn't think that he was doing anything wrong. There was no conspiracy going on here by helping David. Now, what I'd like to do uh, in the rest of our time in walking through this text is a little bit out of the ordinary. I want to look at this narrative just by focusing on the different characters that we see present here. First, I want to look at David, then I want to look at Saul, and then I will look together at Ahimelech and Doeg at the same time. So I want us to see the appealing compassion of David, the deadly paranoia of Saul, and then we'll sort of look at the voices of Ahimelech and Doeg and how they speak to Saul. All right, so first, the appealing compassion of David. The appealing compassion of David. We can see this at the beginning and the end of this chapter. Those who were discontent, those who were in distress, those who were in debt, or even that priest who runs to David at the end in danger, gather around David. David, in fleeing from Saul, was now holed up in a cave. Uh, his family hears where he is at, and so they go down there to him. But it's not just his family that gathers around him. It's all those who are in distress and in debt, everyone who's bitter in soul uh, or discontent. Essentially, it's everybody who's had enough of Saul and really wants David to be their ruler. And you can notice there in the end, in 20 to 23, there's that one priest who survives the massacre, and he runs after David. He tells David how Saul showed up and he killed all of the other priests. And David responds in verse 22 by saying, I am responsible for this. He says this, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. And it was never on David's radar. It was never part of his intention to bring about violence towards these priests. But he recognized that by getting the priests involved and getting them on Saul's radar, he was bringing them into danger. And he tells the one remaining priest to stay with him. David would protect this priest from Saul. Those in distress seek David for comfort. Those who are in debt seek him for freedom. Those who are discontent, they gather together because they 
want to find compassion in him, and those in danger flee to him for protection. These are the characteristics that they find present in David. They come to him, they submit to him and to his leadership, even while he's hiding out in a cave. Now, you would have to imagine that he's a pretty attractive leader for folks to chase him down while he's trying to save his life out in a cave. But that's what people do. Over 400 men come to him and say, I want to follow this guy. This is what the influence of the king of God's people ought to be. Those who seek justice and righteousness run to David. Now, it's weird because David's life was actually genuinely in danger. Saul's trying to kill him over and over again. But David fears the Lord more than he's frightened by Saul. David fears the Lord more than he's frightened by Saul. Notice, too, that David brings his parents to the king of Moab to keep them safe. Uh, His great-grandmother Ruth was from Moab, and also the Moabite king hates Saul. And so he thinks, this will be great. I can put my parents here and take care of them, and they'll be safe from Saul. So he's looking out for his family as well. Do you see David's selflessness on display in the passage? He's seeking what's best for others in his sphere of influence, and people are attracted to that. They find it appealing. They are drawn to David. Each of us has our own spheres of influence in our own lives. Sociologists have said that even the shyest, most introverted person over the course of their life will influence 10,000 people. Our lives shape the lives of those that are around us. What does the way that you lead others or influence others demonstrate about who or what you trust? Parents, would you say that your kids, if they came to you, they would say that your leadership in their life has brought about flourishing? If you ask them, would they tell you that they've found comfort by being in your presence? Have you provided them with a sense of belonging or a sense of security? Fellow Christian, if someone comes to you with a genuine theological question or a stance, would they feel confident bringing that up to you without being mocked or being put down? Would you be firm and loving in your response in a way that encourages growth rather than repelling them, both from you and from the stance that you take? Men and women in the workplace, how is your influence going at your job? Do you go out of your way to treat others with courtesy and with care? The kind of care that would draw them into your life when the circumstances of their lives hit the fan and blow up. If you had a coworker who was struggling with, say, like an issue of self-identity, would the way that you have acted around them in the past make them think that you would be the kind of safe and trustworthy person to approach with their struggles. This is the leadership, this is the influence that David held. But those who are born-again Christians, us, as representatives of the one true living king, of our compassionate, powerful king, Jesus, we who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, our lives should be marked by this kind of influence by bringing life to those around us. That life, that blessing, that is the opposite of what we see in Saul's life and in his influence. Let's look next at the deadly paranoia of Saul. The deadly paranoia of Saul. Saul didn't fear God, and as a result, he became paranoid towards others. 
So Saul, at this point, has lost it. He's completely mad. He's paranoid that everyone is out to get him. There's this giant conspiracy. First of all, he accuses his own servants of trying to conspire against him in verses 6 to 8. And then Doeg, the Edomite, tells Saul that he saw the priest Ahimelech inquiring of the Lord for David, giving him provisions and giving him a sword. So then Saul calls Ahimelech, along with all the other priests, calls them to himself, and then he accuses them of a conspiracy theory. In verse 13, so Saul here is detached from everyone. He even gets mad at other people for not feeling sorry for him in verse 8. Because everybody apparently is in on this. They're all out to get him. And nobody feels sorry for poor, lonely old Saul. So self-focused. He's narrowly focused on himself. He is obsessed with himself, protecting his own power. He's not thinking straight. He sees danger everywhere around him. He thinks that the priests are tricksy hobbitses who only want to steal his ring. The only person he actually trusts is Doeg the Edomite. Because Doeg is the sort of person who is willing to lie in order to tell Saul what he wants to hear. Notice that every time, almost every time, Doeg is mentioned in this passage and in the previous chapter, he's always described as being the Edomite. Historically, the Edomites are another enemy of God's people. So Saul's only trusted advisor in this whole narrative is someone who it is safe to say, I believe, probably does not have Israel's best intentions at heart. In his self-focused, paranoid madness, Saul orders all the priests to be killed for conspiring with David against him. He even has the entire city of Nob put to the sword, decimated. Now you remember what I said earlier. Saul was supposed to put the Amalekites, the enemy of God's people, he was supposed to put them to the sword, but he didn't. Well, now he's putting an Israelite city where the priests served in his own kingdom to the sword. Saul has just done to Israel what he was not willing to do to Israel's worst enemy. I read for us earlier from God's law that said that God's people were to fear God. And what that means is, out of a tremendous love and respect and reverence for God, a healthy fear of displeasing him, we should cling to him, cling to his law, cling to righteousness. And the king of Israel was meant to take the lead in fearing God. But Saul admitted to fearing others more than he feared God, which led to his downfall. And his unhealthy dread of others only grew. As his view of God in his life shrank, his view of people in his life grew in proportion. Saul suffered from something that I think everybody in this room suffers to, to some degree or another, the fear of man. You might have heard it called Peer pressure, or codependency even, people-pleasing, the fear of man. In his book, When People Are Big and God is Small, Ed Welch gives a silly little illustration that I think is a pretty good, uh, relatable sort of illustration of what the fear of man is. He says, think about yourself driving in your car to work, and you're singing, you're just bopping along to the music, singing real loud, and then someone pulls up alongside you and sees you. What do you do? You get embarrassed, right? Some people might not, but you'd get embarrassed because you would think, well, I'm never going to see this person again in my whole life, but they've just witnessed me being a goofball, and now they've just reminded you of that deep fear that you're going to be found out as a real goofball. You're going to be exposed. Well, that's a cute little story. It's, I think, 
somewhat relatable, but the fear of man can get incredibly dark, as Saul has shown us here in this chapter. A couple of days ago, the CDC revealed that the suicide rate of individuals aged 10 to 24 increased 56% between 2007 and 2017. Over that 10-year period, suicide rate went up 56% for individuals aged 10 to 24. Suicide now takes more lives in that age range than homicide does. Some, like a noted psychologist and author, Gene Twenge, wonder if social media might have something to do with this, or texting. Our society is always connected to the internet, and so there's a sense in which, a sense in which we always have to be on. We're always performing, always waiting for someone to give us affirmation or to judge us, always vulnerable to that sort of thing. We are constantly vulnerable to the judgments of of others or of judging ourselves in comparison to what we see other people doing on social media. If your sense of value, your sense of self-worth hangs on the response that you get from others, you're living out of the fear of man. You need affirmation from others in order to feel good about yourself, and then you begin to be controlled by what other people think of you. And so many people write things on social media through a computer that they would never say to your face. And it can have devastating consequences. That fear of man, giving them the power, can have terrible consequences. It can send you into a deep, paranoid spiral of your own. What happens is you turn other people into idols. You need to get your worth from them. And when they don't deliver it, you turn and destroy them. Or you turn inward and destroy yourself. But it's not just youth who have to deal with this fear of man. What about you? What controls your heart? What controls your actions? Whose opinion will control you? I would be lying if I did not admit to the fact that I have a healthy fear of public speaking uh, or of standing in front of folks for 40 minutes wanting to make sure that I'm faithful to the text, but also wanting to be thought of as smart and sharp, insightful, snappy dressed. I'm wearing brown shoes and a black shirt. I had to ask my wife if that was even appropriate before I left the house today. I'm saying this to my shame. I'm not proud of it. But what pulls me out of that when I think, oh my gosh, I'm so worried about what other people are going to be thinking about me, what pulls me out of that is just to to remember that I'm not dependent upon your approval if I'm rightly fearing God. I'm approved by God in Christ, so if you think my shoes don't match my shirt, I can deal with that. If I honor Christ the Lord as holy in my heart as Peter tells us in 1 Peter, that I'm freed now to love you rather than to fear you. I can either listen to that lie that my value is based on your approval of me or the truth that my value is based on God's approval of me in Christ. Two ways I can go with this. I have to consciously remind myself to listen to the truth. There's sort of two voices that you can listen to. 
And I think we see a glimpse of those two voices even in this narrative with Ahimelech and Doeg. So let's look last at that. The honesty of Ahimelech and the deceit of Doeg. Ahimelech speaks the truth. Doeg speaks lies. Saul is building a conspiracy up in his head. And in this scene, he has these two voices sort of competing for influence in his heart and in his mind and in his judgment. Ahimelech and Doeg. Now when Ahimelech heard that Saul had brought this accusation against him, he responds by trying to reason with Saul. He says, listen, Saul, I am not in cahoots with David. I am not trying to do anything to you. Think about it. Nobody has been as faithful to you as David has been to you. He's even your son-in-law. I've never inquired of the Lord for him today or ever. Like, why would I start today? I don't know anything about a conspiracy against you. Don't blame me for this. Don't blame my father's household for this. Ahimelech spoke the truth. He certainly was frightened by Saul as he stood there with a spear, but he must have feared God more. It would have been pretty easy for Ahimelech to change his story to shift God's, or to Saul's wrath from David to Ahimelech. But he didn't do it. Ahimelech stayed faithful to the truth. Doeg, however, on the other hand, feeds Saul's suspicion. He twists the facts, and he outright lies. He says that Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. So when, when kings went to war in Israel... They would always go to a priest. They would need to inquire of the Lord to find out if this was a good idea or not. So Doeg, what he's doing is he is implying that David was about to attack Saul. What else would he be doing? He's inquiring of the Lord. He's got, these, he's got this bread. He's got this sword. Of course he's coming after you, Saul. Doeg feeds Saul's conspiracy. And Saul believes it because it's supporting what he's already thinking internally. His own greatest fears now have been confirmed. This only serves to confirm his suspicions. Walking through these Old Testament narratives about the life of David really is interesting when you sort of compare them with and read them alongside with the Psalms. It's almost like we get it like a director's commentary about what was going on in this passage. And there is a Psalm that David wrote around the time of this event. He wrote Psalm 52 as a response to this event, and it helps us understand, I think, Doeg a little bit better. So let me just read Psalm 52 for us. Psalm 52 says this To the choir master, a mascal of David, when Doeg, the Edomite, came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Verse 1 Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction, like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear, and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his own riches, and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever, because you have done it. 
I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. So, according to David, Doeg lied. Saul thought that everybody was out to get him, and Doeg sort of just puffs up that conspiracy. And Doeg acted because he wanted the money and the power, the influence. He wanted to be a trusted advisor of Saul, the king. Imagine what that might bring to his life. And he was willing to lie, and he was willing to kill in order to get that. Ahimelech, though, tried to speak some sense into Saul. Listen, you love David. He's not trying to get you. He's not trying to hurt you. But then you have Doeg. No, we hate David. He's trying to destroy you. But Saul, in his madness, couldn't be reasoned with. He wanted them all dead. Saul couldn't convince his servants to kill the priests of the Lord. They knew better than that. But Doeg the Edomite, he was ready and willing. Eighty-five priests were struck down, and then Doeg destroyed the entire city of Nob. Only one priest survived. I think we all have thoughts like this. Questions pop into our head. Is there a secret group of people who have inside information that they're withholding from me? I keep hearing about these people over here meeting. I bet they're getting together to talk about me. Surely that's what's going on. Or how do I look in their eyes? When these sorts of questions arise, when you have sort of suspicion about the way that other people think of you or the way that they're perceiving you, you have to try to take yourself in your own hand and say, listen, self, you need some sense spoken to you. You need that voice of reason that says, listen, there is no conspiracy against you. Lighten up. You don't want to listen to that voice that says, no, you're right. They're all out to get you. Nobody loves you. They all think you're a loser. There's these two sort of competing voices that can go on in our heads. In thinking about the fact that there are so many more people now that are involved in Suicidal thoughts. Surely there are folks here, even this week, that have had suicidal thoughts. They perhaps are dealing with the voices of an Ahimelech and a Doeg bouncing around in their head, confirming fears, trying to resolve fears. So if you have had these sorts of thoughts this week, it's tell somebody. You can come and talk to me after the service. Find someone like an Ahimelech. Find someone like a David. Someone that you can trust. Someone that you think is safe. Just tell them about these sort of thoughts that you're having. If you hide it in shame, it doesn't get better. Tell somebody, but ultimately what you need to do is bring that to Christ. You need to be reminded of the glorious truth that God loves you. He has demonstrated that to you by the fact that he has sent his own son to redeem you from sin. Think what spirit dwells within you. Think about the Father's love for you. Think of the fact that Jesus died to win you. Don't listen to the lies. There are two voices that you can listen to. There are words of truth that can lead to life. There are lies that can lead to death. Which will it be? Run to Jesus.
find a confidant, find a friend that you can talk to about it. Well, there's a, an irony in this narrative. When Doeg the Edomite was first introduced in chapter 21 last week, he was called the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Saul's chosen chief shepherd was a murderous enemy of God's people. He would do anything, he would say anything to gain money, to gain power. Meanwhile, the shepherd that God chose, David, is out there in the wilderness, drawing all kinds of downtrodden people to himself, caring for them. Which one was acting like a good shepherd? Doeg had the title of chief shepherd, but David was actually filling the role of shepherd. As good as David was, David was flawed. We know this. We'll find more about it. Uh, throughout this sermon series. And as good as any good godly leader that you know is, they too are flawed. There is only one good shepherd. Capital G, capital S, good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep. There is one true king whose influence, whose leadership, brings about life and love and flourishing. There is one who, when he was lifted up, said he would draw all men to himself. All those who are discontent, all those who are in distress, all those who are in debt, all those who are in danger. These are the kinds of people that find Jesus appealing. And when his sheep come to them, when they are gathered to Christ, he gives them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them from his hand. No deceitful scheme of man, no conspiracy theory, no power of hell. Friends, fear God. Do not be frightened of others. Abide close with Jesus. With Christ, you shall be in safe keeping. Join me in prayer.